This podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available, the Fuller Leadership Scholarship for students who begin the Certificate of Christian Studies in spring of 2019 or summer of 2019. This new scholarship will cover up to 100% of certificate's tuition cost for select students and is designated for ministry and marketplace leaders looking for new ways to impact their congregation, community, and calling. Take courses in the areas like missional churches and leadership, Christian ethics, dynamics of power and gender in Christian leadership. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash leadership scholarship. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. This week's podcast conversation is brought to you by the Baptist Commons of Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Several School of Divinity alumni have thrived within Baptist life, serving in significant positions of leadership in local churches and in larger denominational organizations. The school's newly launched Baptist Commons program draws on the success, fostering opportunities for mentoring and internships so students can network with alumni and other Baptist leaders. The Baptist Commons honors the school's Baptist heritage and its role in fostering excellence among diverse communities of Baptists. To find out more, visit divinity.wfu.edu. Our guests for this week's podcast are Mike Martin and Shane Claiborne. Mike is a pastor, a writer, a founder, and executive director of Raw Tools. Shane is a speaker, author, activist, and executive director of Red Letter Christian. Guys, thanks for joining the conversation. Yeah, man. Great to be here. Uh, Shane, you're in Philadelphia. Mike, you're in Colorado Springs. So walk us through your journey together. Yeah, we we started working together. Well, I guess I started working together with Shane almost ever since Raw Tools started about six years ago. Uh, we both we both started turning guns into garden tools with an AK-47 uh, separately. So it it's it's uh, felt like a, a a good match for us that we kind of came to this <laughs> this work together um, through two different ways, but yet using the same gun. So uh, and that's kind of followed how we've worked together since then um we we first partnered at the justice conference when it was in philadelphia there with shane and turned the gun into a garden tool there and it's it's really kind of grown from there yeah we we uh both those ak-47s uh andy were donated as well so uh and i think we're we're both lamenting the culture of violence you know we we at the time weren't specifically thinking just about um gun violence or mass shootings, but um, it was the anniversary of September 11th, and we were kind of seeing the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and um, obviously this vision of beating swords into plows goes way back, and the prophets Mike and Isaiah foretell of that future, that world where people will um, turn their tools that are designed to kill and the tools that are designed to cultivate life, and uh, so that's what we started doing and we've we've been doing it for years now and now we get to be hitting the road with uh, the book and uh, traveling around the country um 
it, it became apparent to us that we've got more guns than people in the United States. Um, we've, we've got half the world's guns and only 5% of the world's population. So we can make a lot of tools out of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a fascinating uh, concept. Uh, Mike, I mean, you, you, you started Raw Tools. Walk us through, um, you know, what this is exactly, because it's, it's more than just literally taking guns and turning them into garden tools. And, and take us through, you know, kind of not just this concept for this conference, but, you know, why make this into a nonprofit or I guess a, a for-profit organization? Uh, we are a nonprofit or organization. Um, we, we wanted to kind of collaborate with people and make this an, an everyday thing. So there's a lot of people that have been, um, and rightfully so, artists especially, been turning guns into garden tools or guns into sculptures. And they're usually a part of a one-time event and kind of like making, sending a message to a community or to our nation. And we wanted to take that concept and see if we could do that on a continuous basis. So can we be open for individual donations uh, all the time? Can we be talking with police departments and turning their confiscated weapons into garden tools and putting them in, in community gardens where in the community that they were confiscated from? Um, and can we be partnering with larger buyback programs uh, to help help um, bring that that ratio of guns to people down in America? And so far, we just, we've discovered that, yes, people want this option, that we found that people have been hanging on to guns for decades because they were used in a family member's suicide and they didn't want somebody else to have that that danger in their life. And they also had some meaning to that gun as well because it was a part of a family tradition in hunting or, or something like that. So we've made made some items out of out of those weapons and given them them given them back and, and they've been able to see the rest of that that gun be turned into garden tools and go across the country and, and cultivate life in, in gardens across the America. So it's it's really been uh, a great journey, and we're we're um, really surprised at how how much people want to be a part of this. But not that people want to be a part of it, but that these people are coming from um, all over this spectrum of pro-gun or anti-gun or, or, you know, wherever that is politically or theologically, people want to plug into this uh, all across those varying beliefs. Well, I know you're in Colorado Springs, but I imagine this does hit home with, you know, Aurora, Colorado and Columbine being right up the road. Um, that, that gun violence in your state is, is something difficult continuing to, to manage and to chew on. Um, tell us, I mean, what, what are the proceeds benefiting? Uh, so we're tying every every gun that we track that we take in and turn into a garden tool. We track it to each garden tool. So if you buy a garden tool from us, you can find out what the story is. So if it was a gun that was used in a suicide and we made four tools out of it, one of those tools goes back to the person who donated the gun, and the other three uh, are available for sale. And those funds help um, support maybe a, a suicide prevention program or a mental health first aid class. So we're trying to support the the solutions to issues that are underneath gun violence. So gun violence speaks from a variety of places. So mass shootings is what we hear about and kind of what gets us talking. But underneath that, there's suicide and domestic violence and gang violence and, and other issues too. Accidents, 10 kids 
uh, under the age of 17 die every day from gun violence. So there's a lot of kind of collateral damage that's happening to our our want to just own a gun um, or as many guns as we we can get a hold of. Really, um, so many so many of the guns are owned by such a small amount of people in our country. It's about 50% of the guns are owned about 3% of gun owners. So that's a, a lot of guns for a small amount of people. So, and two thirds of people don't own a gun in the U S so there's, there's a lot of people who go about their everyday life without a gun. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of connections to be made to the issues that cause gun violence. And we want the tools to be able to do that so we can support those programs. Well, the federal government is doing such a wonderful job collecting all the bump stocks um, with the laws passed. So, you know, you can just go to the federal government and ask for all those bump stocks that they still haven't collected yet. Yeah, I'll see yeah. if we can. So many of those are, are plastic. It'd be interesting to see what we can make out of those. Well, in addition to literally turning these guns into gardening tools, your, your artists are also turning these weapons into artwork. Um, I need to order one of these AR-15 t-shirts in which uh, the shirt shows uh, life out of death with a flower growing out of this uh, disabled gun. Mm. Y'all, are, y'all are doing beautiful, beautiful work. Um, now, in March, uh, you released uh, Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence. It's becoming a sad reality that I don't have to name one specific gun violent incident that catapults you into writing this book because every day 47 children and teens are shot, murdered, assaulted, uh, suicides and suicide attempts, unintentional shootings and police interventions all revolving around guns every day. 342 people in America are shot, murdered, assaulted, uh, victims of suicide, unintentional shootings and police interventions. And then 17,207 American children and teens are shot um, each year. but, but Shane, what was the starting place for you for writing this book? Well, I, I do think that the statistics are important. You know, some people begin with their head and their heart follows. But for a lot of folks, I think, you know, we have a, something that happens in our heart that causes us to rethink um, sort of the status quo or what has become normal in America. And the statistics you gave are powerful. I mean, it, it's just it's it's. Uh, incredible that we've become accustomed to losing, you know, over a hundred lives a day. And those have, that's been that way for decades. In fact, one of the things that we saw is just in two decades in the United States, we've lost more Americans than in 250 years of foreign wars. So it's interesting also, I think, for, for folks that we, we've come to think of pro-life so narrowly as one issue around abortion that we uh, end up ignoring a lot of other issues of, uh, that, that are, uh, pro- they are for, you know, life issues. And, and gun violence is surely one of those. Uh, all of us who believe that human beings are created in the image of God um, must really be grieved by the 100 lives, 105 lives a day that are lost to gun violence. And, um, and so what we're kind of, where, where, where we're at is there's folks that'll say, well, it's not a gun problem, it's a heart problem. And we go, why can't it be both? You know, th- this is kind of a false binary. You know, it, we, we do have a heart problem. And if you got rid of every gun in America, which actually isn't even our intent, but if you did, we'd still find ways to kill each other. Um, but, you know, guns that shoot 100 rounds in a minute make our capacity to do evil um, 
so much more um, deadly. And, and that, that's what we're going is, is we're kind of raising the question, can we save some lives? We won't save all lives, but, but we're, we're convinced. And so are most Americans that we can save some lives. If we want to, we can make it a little harder to find a gun to take your own life, um, which is how so many suicides uh, happen. Um, and we can, um, I mean, even for folks that say blue lives matter, you know, that care about police officers, 90% of police officers that die on duty die from guns. And we literally still have bullets that are, um, they're often called, called cop killer bullets because they're designed to pierce uh, body armor. And, and so, you know, that, I think there's a lot of reasonable people that are going, do we need bullets like that? Do we need guns that are advertised that they can take a helicopter out of the sky? Like, you know, do we need guns that can shoot a hundred rounds in a minute on our streets? Capitalism, the NRA and self-centeredness are the biggest adversaries of this movement. Fear and lies perpetuate into all media outlets and social media posts that that dictate and prescribe uh, many people's opinions on these matters. Mike, you're, you're a local church pastor. So, so for you, how can local church ministers who are caring and nurturing for people who might be gun owners and gun advocates in their congregations, how, how, how do you begin to do spiritual formation around this conversation? I think, well, growing up in the Mennonite church, there's a huge emphasis on nonviolence. Um, and I think that we can do a lot of positive work in exploring just how to solve conflict with each other, because there's, there's a lot of conflict that has happened before it gets to gun violence. There's a lot of lines that have crossed, been crossed before someone decides to um, pull a trigger on somebody else or themselves that there's a lot of things that people surrounding them, love of neighbor, uh, that we can, we can really hone in on and, and teach youth at a young age. Um, you know, even I have, I have a five-year-old and a one-year-old and the, the five-year-old especially is starting to, uh, learn how to deal with conflict in his life. Uh, when his, when his little brother knocks over a tower and his little brother is starting to imitate, uh, his older brother on how his fits that he throws or something like that. And so we learn at a very young, young age, how to, how to navigate conflict. And it's, it's really up to those, those of us who can set an example of this is how we deescalate. This is how we calm each other down. And then when the, when we're at that point, we can, we can talk to each other. A big, big part of the work of raw tools is restorative justice where victims and offenders sit down and talk to each other and work to repair the harm. And that's all centered around victims being open to, to meeting with their offender. And that, that takes a lot of counseling on both sides that they go through all kinds of sessions before they ever meet. And then they have community members to support both the victim and the offender. They have a facilitator that goes through that. And that's, that can be on a grand scale of, of first degree murder all the way down to um, used in elementary schools. There's, there's schools in Colorado Springs and in other states as well that are using restorative justice as a model to um, resolve conflict. And that brings, it keeps kids in schools, it keeps um, expulsions down and suspensions down, and it keeps, it allows people to go through a process to uh, see the value in each other and that in that instance, when they made a bad decision, that doesn't define who they are, uh, that they're, they're much more than their worst moment. So 
I think a lot of it is setting an example to the younger generations, especially in the faith formation uh, of youth groups in that context in the church that they're watching us and they're, they're seeing how we respond to conflict. And it's, it's such an opportunity um, for the church to model conflict resolution, especially in the context of gun violence in America. In my observations, I think for many people, the, the desire to continue to own these, these weapons that it just makes no sense why somebody should be able to fire off that many rounds on a personal weapon that has to do with um, ego and consumerism and so much wrapped up into this false identity of masculinity um, that the church has to figure out a way to help people theologically come around such concepts and, and lead to two results. Um, you, you wrote, uh, when you challenge guns, some people want to kill you with their guns. Many of the leaders in the movement to reduce gun violence receive death threats regularly. But it helps to remember that the forces we are up against are not flesh and blood, but spiritual forces are at work. Shane, take us a little deeper there. Well, you, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that because the spiritual side of this is so important. And that's a big chunk of our book is not just seeing this as a gun problem, but, but also uh, that this, this is kind of goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you know, and the first kind of inaugural sin outside the garden was murder. It was a brother killing a brother. So that, that blood, uh, which God said, God felt the blood cry out from the ground. Um, so that this is this runs really deep, um, and it also runs deep in our history. We we uh, it, it would be irresponsible to ignore some of the violence that has um, been a part of U.S. history. Um, you know, with what we did to Native Americans and the uh, the instrumental role that guns played in all of that. Um, and and the same with uh, African Americans and enslaved people that that you know armed. Uh, uh, slave patrols, you know, were, were a part of this kind of racial terror that is um, in our, it's in our, our history. And so we can't kind of can't get our, our future right until we get our history right. And we, we face some of those things. Um, and even to this day, you know, we see a lot of these kind of fractures, these fault lines in America uh, when it comes to race and the Me Too movement and gender and the new Congress and all these things. But the fact is that this, the, 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 it's not only a male problem, but there is a, a, you know, an element of toxic masculinity that, that comes out, you know, like even the advertisements for guns that say, um, uh, welcome to your man card, you know, and it, 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 even going all the way back to how guns were originally marketed to men and young boys, like it was a rite of passage in the manhood. So disproportionately guns are owned by white men in, in America, like, uh, a third, less than a third of Americans are white men, but over 60% of gun owners are white males. And we also can see when it comes to domestic violence that um, half of all murders of U.S. women are committed by an intimate partner. Um, so ha actually having a gun in the home, a lot of folks would say that's to protect the woman, but an abused woman is five times more likely to be a victim of, of domestic homicide if there's a gun in the home. And so, the, you know, I think part of what we're trying to do, do is debunk the, the, 
the fake news <laughs> and the false statistics out there, but also go like, this is real. I mean, we kind of grow up hearing of stranger danger, but the fact is that the people that are victims of homicide are more likely to be killed by someone that knows them, often somebody that has a key to their house. And in a culture that is so um, driven by fear, you know, fear of people who don't look like us, fear of immigrants or Muslims or whatever, like, um, there, there was a great study done by the Cato Institute that we cite in, beating, in our, gun, our, our book, Beating Guns, and they, they, they listed like a dozen things that are more likely to kill you than a refugee or immigrant. Um, and uh, those things included things like swing sets, roller coasters, a vending machine falling on you, <laughs> right? So one of the promises of scripture is that perfect love casteth out fear. And that is one of the central themes of this book is an invitation to stand that, that really fear and love are enemies and, and they, they just can't coexist. And just as love casts out fear, fear also doesn't make much room for love. And, and I think a lot of us are concerned right now about our country that our, our dialogue around guns and immigration and so many other issues are um, really driven more by fear than they are by love. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. You wrote a great deal about victims of gun violence. You, you told their story. Um, why was this so important to you? Um, why, what story in particular stuck out to you the most? Uh, Mike, we'll start with you. Uh, like I said before, restorative justice is such a huge part of the, the lens of raw tools. And so um, the story of Charlotta Evans that's in there where she loses her three-year-old son to a, a drive-by gang shooting and, and then culminates kind of her work that she's currently doing is advocating for parole for the person who pulled the trigger now that she's gone through that restorative justice conferencing with, mm-hmm. with uh, the teen who was, who is, who shot, shot, made that the fatal shot as well as the teen who was driving the car. And that both of those teens were, were, they were under 18 and at the time they were sentenced to life without parole. And then since then, that you can't do that to a juvenile anymore in Colorado. And so she is actively advocating and testifying for them to have that opportunity for parole as the mother of the three-year-old that they killed. And, and one of them, uh, their fam- his family disowned them, disowned him, that they, they, don't, they don't want anything to do with him. And so he asked her if, if she could be his, his mom. 
And when at the conference, at the end of the conference, she she answered him and said, "Yes, yes, I'd I'd like to, I'd like to kind of serve as as that mother role for you." And so they talk once a week, sometimes more, ever since then, and that's been going on for for four years. But that's I first heard that story at a restorative justice conference in Colorado Springs, and that was kind of during the formative time of of raw tools, and so that's that's had a, a huge impact. Um, and and because restorative justice is victim based, we I, I I look at gun violence through the lens of victims so much now, and how they're kind of chewed up and spit out by the media cycle, and that they're 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 wanted so much, their stories wanted to be told so much for a week, and then something else happens, and they don't hear from anybody ever again. So it's like a, a second trauma almost mm. that they, they they went through this deep grief. And all of a sudden they have all this attention. People are calling them onto national media shows. And then all of a sudden it's gone because the next, the next bad thing happened, whatever it is. And then they're, they're left with what feels like nothing. They, it's a huge emotional roller coaster. Um, and then they still have to deal with it with the original trauma, the grief of losing a loved one. So mm. that those restorative stories, um, and they're, they're all, they're all different everyone's everyone's experience with gun violence is different so um there's there's just so many layers so many of the different events that shane and i have done together they have a similar format but they are markedly different from each other because the stories are so much different and that's why we we focus so much on those stories in the book yeah for for me one of the i mean i what what really um uh began to become a fire in my bones you know as as jeremiah says like around the gun violence like that that sparked and that initially began to kind of happen because um this became personal like we began to see um too many people dying on the streets of our neighborhood and literally i could you know if you came here andy you know i could walk you through and you'll see the the r.i.p you know rest in peace memorials uh, painted on corners and walls all over our, our neighborhood, almost every corner, I can tell you the stories of who was shot there. And that became really personal when one of the young men was shot on our front step and he was still alive when I uh, came out and held his hand. And the next morning, you know, as I, uh, we, we heard that he had died. And there kind of was a point where um, Martin Luther King says it really well. He says, we're called to be the good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, maybe we need to reimagine the whole road to Jericho. <laughs> you know, We need to do something about why people continue to end up in the ditch. And and when Papito died, the, the young 19-year-old in front of our house, that was, that was really a point for me where I wanted to um, continue to do the spiritual development, the nonviolence training, you know, all the like community development work we do, but we also wanted to really try to do something concrete about gun violence. Um, and and the, the power of working together with Mike and Raw Tools, it, it's, it's kind of hard to put words to it, but when you see an, an instrument that is designed to kill in the matter of an hour being transformed and often by people who have lost their loved ones, there's something um, mystical and therapeutic um, healing about that. You know, we over and over see folks as they beat on the gun, they start telling their story 
and they're just weeping. And that's exactly what happens at the forge. So as we're traveling around the country every night, we'll be doing um, this kind of holy ceremony around the forge where we see a gun transformed, but we also invite people to bring the hostilities of their own hearts and um, allow the spirit of God to heal us and also to heal um, our country and our streets of gun violence. Oh, and you know what? One more thing, Andy, as we were finishing the book, the end of each chapter has a memorial. Um, and a lot of those are memorials from mass shootings. Um, but we also have a memorial to uh, black lives. Um, we've got a few different ways that we remember the victims of gun violence. But as we were finishing the book, there was a shooting um, like 50 yards from my house. And it was a, a military style assault rifle with 39 rounds that were uh, shot in less than a minute and two people lost their lives. So we went back to our manuscript and we added a memorial um, to that shooting that happened like literally as we were handing in our manuscript. So, you know, we, we, we are just grieved by this, but we're also hopeful. It's a book of hope that, you know, kind of begins by declaring it doesn't have to be this way and we can be a part of changing that. Mm-hmm. Y'all did a great amount of research for this book and, and your findings. What, what factor trends surprised you the most? Well, I, I'll start because I, I, uh, Mike's been, had a heavy hand at the forge and he did a lot of great writing for the book. Um, but I, I did like do a ton of research, especially as we were trying to identify kind of how did we exactly get here into the funk that we're in, you know, like we haven't always had more guns than people, uh, in this country. And one of the things that was really interesting uh, that we talk about in the book a little bit is that a lot of the folks that began to mass produce guns, they weren't actually big fa- fans of guns. Um, uh, Remington was a pacifist. Uh, Winchester was a, a businessman and he was in the t-shirt or he was in the shirt business and just thought he could make more money making guns. He didn't even own guns at the time and never became a big fan of guns. They were just out. They didn't love guns. They loved money. But what they mastered was the mass production of guns. So they went from being more of a tool, like you, you know, folks would imagine having um, for their farm, and that's exactly the gunsmiths that Mike knows all this research, you know, about the history of gunsmithing and blacksmithing. But it went to mass production, and Eli Whitney was a big part of that. So you know, Eli Whitney that you know invented the cotton gin, and but I went to the Eli uh, uh, Whitney factory, and I was like. So he was one of the big first producers of gun, like mass producers of guns. And uh, they took me in this little back room and showed me some of the oldest guns in our country. And it was almost like they were ashamed of that, you know? <laughs> and, and I kind of, I kind of liked that because I, the, the whole industry of guns almost has this like moral athe- uh, agnosticism to it. Like it, 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 I think some of the folks that, uh, have led us to where we are would be appalled, you know, at where we, we are right now. But then there's also, there's a lot of other things. I guess it's why, you know, we wrote a book on it, but even our, when it comes to like gun regulations, um, white folks that owned guns were some of the biggest advocates for gun control. 
when it came to controlling Native Americans and African Americans from having access to guns. And um, <laughs> so when we talk about, you know, uh, that we don't want any regulations on guns, some of those same folks, you know, historically uh, believed in regulating guns for everybody that wasn't white. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of history that's there that you still see that residue, you know, in groups like the NRA. Um, but just one more thing is that the National Rifle Association, you know, it says it has 5 million members. Um, and if we give them the benefit of the doubt, what that also means is that 90% of gun owners are not a part of the NRA. And one of the stunning things that became very apparent as we were writing this book is that a vast majority of gun owners really believe in some common sense changes in this country when it comes to things like background checks and assault rifles. And even a majority of gun owners believe in raising the minimum age to 21 and um, or, or having a mandatory age of 21 for concealed carry. Things like uh, not having folks, uh, having folks that can't fly on an airplane being able to get a gun like that. Those are those are bad ideas. And um, so <laughs> but that's encouraging because I, I think we are going to see some changes and um, we're excited about that. So this isn't a book against gun owners. In fact, half of our family members are still gun owners. Um, but there are a few gun extremists that have really held us hostage from moving forward uh, on some of these changes. Let's talk about the third way. You wrote, um, it is here that we see Jesus who abhors both passivity and violence. The third way is neither submissive nor assault, neither fight nor, f nor flight. The third way teaches us that evil can be opposed without mirrored. Oppressors can be resisted without being manipulated. Enemies can be neutralized without being destroyed. Mike, take us a little deeper into the third way. I think you, you already like... Uh put a, a good word to it when he said you can't mirror violence, that the third way kind of holds the mirror to violence so that the, it can see it for what it really is. So it's, it's not, uh, Shane talks a lot about, you can't use a death penalty. You can't kill people to show killing people is wrong. That that's holding the mirror to it. That's how we, we kind of disarm that the oppressor or disarm the idea that violence can, create a solution instead of uh, what it really does is just create more problems. So there's the, the ripple effects of gun violence, I think, are a great way to talk about the third way that, yeah, you might be able to fend off a, uh, an intruder or something or the idea that you can do that. But even if you kill that person, you're still harming other people, not just the person that's there. And you have no idea, no context as to why they're there. So there's there's a different, all kinds of ways to engage that. And I think that's one of the, the reasons why Jesus spoke in parables, that it's, this isn't a black and white. So many of the questions that were asked of him were kind of forcing in, him into that like false binary option or that false dichotomy of having to choose one or the other. And so, you know, when he's asked, who is, who is your, uh, who's your neighbor? And he said, well, you it's he goes into a lot of different instances where you got to love your enemy as well and that uh your mother and your brother and your father that he's breaking down all these labels that everybody is our neighbor and no matter what uh they they might be posing in a certain situation um that it's it's our charge to see the image of god in each other and to value that and to value each other's opportunity to to um, 
to put a face uh to put the face of god in in each other and i think that's for me that's that's the value of the third way of seeing that like look i don't have to um I don't have to engage with this person with violence, that there are other ways to do that. And we tell a couple of these stories in the book. Um, one of one of the first supporters of raw tools is this older lady, really petite, um, former former teacher, does a lot of uh, work in, in schools and, and things. And someone broke into her house and she was in her bedroom and he was in the hallway and she just used her best best teacher voice and says, you don't have permission to be here. Get out now. And he left. And it was this kind of moment of uh, people, people who are looking to um, be an aggressor are expecting aggression back. And so when you don't respond with aggression, you're automatically part of that de-escalation. And, and so there's, there's a lot of practical ways of the third way of living that out, like uh, my friend did there. But then there's also a lot of spiritual practice, a lot of preparation that is required for us to be able to respond in, in that loving way where we where we carry that backpack the extra mile um and and the other instances that jesus talks about loving our enemy yeah there, there's a really there's a really practical side of this i think that um you know we we kind of are conditioned to think that a gun's the best way to protect ourselves um but even on a on a real factual, you know, like a, a surface level, we, we, we cite a bunch of studies that you can find, you know, in the book about where we've really seen um, uh, violence stopped and cell phones have often been just as effective as having a gun or mace or other things have been just as effective as a gun. Um, I think you can argue either way on this, but there's something really interesting, I think, for those of us who claim to follow Jesus. And that is like, can we follow Jesus's command to love our enemy and simultaneously prepare to kill them? That the cross and the gun give us kind of two different versions of what power looks like. Um, and and they're hard, it's hard for us to reconcile those. I mean, even Peter, Jesus's right-hand man, you know, like when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, he picks up a weapon. He picks up his sword and cuts one of the guy's ears off. And Jesus's response is so important. He scolds Peter. He rebukes him and says, put your sword back. You pick up the sword, you'll die by the sword. And then he heals the guy that Peter had wounded. And the early Christians in the first several hundred centuries, like they looked at that and they said, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every Christian. Like if ever you had a, a case for using violence to protect the innocent, uh, Peter had the best case that there ever was. Um, but, but that idea that we can use redemptive violence or we can use violence to try to stop violence um, is, is a myth. I mean, it really um, escalates the very thing that we seek to get rid of. And, and so, um, you know, I think those of us that look to Jesus, we see what perfect love looks like, and it is fearless. It is nonviolent. It is loves our enemies so much we're willing to die for them. And so the mantra of the NRA to stand your ground really flies in the face of Jesus' command to love our enemies. And when Peter stood his ground violently, he was rebuked by Jesus. And, and so Jesus is really our model for who we look to. And I, and I think that's the 
the hardest part is moving from a gun or a sword that offers kind of this this illusion of instant problem solving towards a plow, which really requires requires a lot more patience, just like uh, a farmer would know that they've they've got to plant the seed and care for that seed and and care for that crop before they ever see a harvest months later. So I think that's really the struggle. Um, the spiritual struggle is kind of moving towards patience instead of that instant solution. What's your greatest hope for the book? Um, Mike, let's start with you. Oh, well, I, I love Micah's version of the swords and the plows because he adds this little bit at the end where we'll all sit under our own vine and our own fig tree in fear of no other. And, mm. and we often talk about that as being when people come in and out of our lives, people who are in our lives now, people we don't know who will enter our lives in the future that we're able to welcome them with open arms instead of bearing arms. And I think that's, that's a, that's a foundational point, not just for, for Christians, but that's something that George Washington openly wrote about that the vine and fig tree, this, this not utopia, but this place where we can get to that. It's a, it's a place to go in our, in our hearts, in our streets, that that's, that's a real thing that we can have. And we see everyday examples of that um, with, with a lot of the, the heroes of the civil rights movement that have been able to show us how, how to love our enemies and how to engage in conflict. And I think that's, for me, um, as a Christian who lives in America, that uh, that's, that's the end goal, that we can, we can be much more welcoming of each other and that we don't, it's hard to do that when you have a gun on your hip. Mm. Yeah, I, I think going back, that, that was a good word Mike offered. And, and going back to this idea that um, we have both a heart problem and a gun problem. One of my hopes through the, the book and the tour and everything that we're doing is that we will heal. We will see some hearts healed, you know, even violent hearts. Um, uh, we, we've all kind of got that in us. And so we, we want to pray that the spirit of God would heal our hearts. Um, and we also want to see... Um, some action uh, happen um, because God God heals hearts, but people change laws, and we we'd love to see us change some so uh, laws and policies that might do a better job at protecting life. And and some of those are things like um, guns that are designed to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible, and you know can shoot over ten rounds without reloading. Like, do those really belong on our streets? Um, should there be a limit to the number of handguns that one person can buy in a month or in a year? So we're not, no one's trying to say we need to get rid of all guns, but you know, are there some, some ways that we could protect life uh, better? Um, and some of those aren't even laws. They're things like technology that um, some of the gun extremists have blocked that we believe would, would save lives. Things like fingerprint technology. We, we might've not even thought about, you know, but we've got cell phones and ATMs and, you know, locks on our homes that can now operate off a fingerprint technology. And why wouldn't we want to see if that's possible with guns to have smart guns so uh, we could stop many people that might uh, commit suicide with a gun they found in the home or, um, an accident if a kid finds a gun it wouldn't operate without the fingerprint of the owner so there's things like that and, and in the end i think we also know that that laws and policies and even technology um are are, are not going to solve everything so we do need to make some changes but um we also 
the, the image of Mike and Isaiah is so beautiful because it ends by saying, nation will not rise up against nation. They will learn violence no more. But it begins with people's own hearts transformed. And so we, we, that's the invitation is that, the, that our country would be so moved that we begin to turn from death to life. We begin to even transform uh, things that have brought death into things that can cultivate life. And then the nations follow and the kings and presidents and politicians, they follow the hearts of the people. And so we, we do need a heart change in, in America. If you want to stay connected with Shane and Mike, you can follow them on Twitter. Also check out rawtools.org. Go out and purchase Beating Guns wherever books are sold. Mike and Shane, thank you for inviting us into the stories of those who've been victimized by guns. Thank you for your courage to say what you have said. And thank you for reminding us of Jesus' invitation to follow him into a new way of thinking and living. Absolutely. Thanks. For Thanks. Thanks for the conversation, brother. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.